we need the private sector to be on board with some of the changes that we need to see to tackle some of the biggest you know, crises that we're facing at the moment. Um, and by offering employees that meaningful say and stake, you'll start to hear the voices of not just a handful of directors at the top making decisions, but but you know, in terms of some of those really fundamental decisions about the way that businesses are going to behave, what is actually driven by a much broader base. You've got that sort of much broader conscience within the business. Hello, and welcome to UmiCast, a podcast about business and entrepreneurship. At UMI, we make it easier for businesses to do more and go further by finding and packaging the best information, expertise in finance, so you can make better business decisions more quickly. This conversation is with the CEO of the Employee Ownership Association, James Delavine. Now, the EOA is a not-for-profit organisation that works in close partnership with its members to champion, promote and provide insight into the business case for employee ownership across the UK. If you didn't already know, UMI is an employee-owned business and a proud member of the EOA, and so we recorded this podcast with James in the lead-up to EO Day 2022. James became the chief executive of the EOA back in February and prior to that uh, had had a pretty amazing career working for NGOs to provide humanitarian assistance in different parts of the world. So in this conversation, we immerse ourselves in some of the amazing places James has had the opportunity to work in, from supporting refugees in Ghana and Liberia to helping farming communities identify and dispose of unexploded armaments in Myanmar. We also talk about how James became involved in the UK Cooperative Movement, leading the development team at Cooperatives UK, and how a project called One Million Owners led him to start working with the EOA. And of course, we spend some time discussing the finer points of the employee ownership model and how businesses can unleash the potential of their people and tackle broader socioeconomic issues by becoming employee owned. With that in mind, I hope any business owners listening to this that are thinking about how they can empower their staff will be inspired by what James has to say. And so here is James Delavine on building a new economy through employee ownership. Well, welcome to the podcast, James, and great to be speaking to you just before EO Day. Uh, I know it's an important day in the calendar for us employee-owned businesses. So yeah, great to be speaking to you. Uh, and I know you just took over as, as CEO of the EOA uh, fairly recently. So, yeah, like, you know, how have you been settling in and, and how are you kind of feeling in the lead up to EO Day this year? Well, well thanks for having me, Richard. It's uh, it's great to be here. It's It's been a whirlwind. It's been an absolute whirlwind and I've loved every minute of it. So I joined on Valentine's Day in February, um, which Perfect. may be an ominous start. But um, the team have been phenomenal. But and, and you'll know this. The employee-owned community is an incredibly welcoming, giving, generous community. And so I've spent as much as I possibly can in terms of the time I've had available to, to engage with, with our members, you know, with employee-owned businesses. So I've been touring up and down the country. Uh, I've spent a huge amount of time on trains, getting to know what, what employee ownership means to different people. Um, and there are different expressions about what employee ownership is and what it, you know, what it means, what it delivers for businesses, individuals, communities. Um, and it's, it's a really rich landscape. And so that's been the focus. As we move towards EO Day, um, the team are really busy. You know, we're collating stories where we're trying to identify and, and engage with members and hear about what they're doing on EO Day to celebrate. We're going to make some noise. Um, we're going to celebrate the scale and growth of the sector. Um, and we're we're at the centre of it. So while we'll be celebrating ourselves, you know, we're really there to sort of anchor a lot of that conversation nationally around what's going on in this space. So yeah. from my perspective, a brilliant start. I couldn't, couldn't be happier. Perfect, James. And yeah, obviously, you know, we're super looking forward to EO Day as well. And they're going to coordinate with you guys on, on some some activity of which this, this podcast will be part. So yeah, looking forward to talking a little bit more about employee ownership as well as we as we sort of move through this conversation. But I, I kind of thought it would be quite instructive if we just sort of preface this by talking a little bit about your background, because, you know, uh, looking through your LinkedIn profile and things like that, it sounds like you've had this kind of pretty fascinating career. So 
yeah, all over the world and, yeah. and working for NGOs and things like that, which which I'm sure you've had some brilliant experiences. But yeah, just to start us off, James, kind of, you know, where did it all begin for, for you? Where, where you know, how what chain of events has kind of led you into the the career and the path that you've taken now? I mean, it's a it's a an interesting story, shall we say? You know, I found it interesting, that's for sure. And I think I think what that says about me is that I'm just incredibly curious. You know, ever since a kid, I've just been fascinated um, by almost everything. Uh, that was so true at school. You know, I, I I really enjoyed sort of school and the whole education piece, but I couldn't really land on one particular thing that I was really keen on pursuing or. Uh, one subject that really landed well with me it was all a bit of I just wanted to put my hands into everything and so I sort of threw myself into it um, and that that's probably what you've seen on my LinkedIn profile is actually you know I'm, I'm I just want to learn and then immerse myself in different parts of this you know this incredible world that we inhabit uh, and and try and ex, you know expose myself to as much of it as possible and and, and learn and sort of take those nuggets of, of learning with you into the next phase. So, um, I, I mean, I grew up on the South coast, um, and in a, in a, in a really happy, but modest, uh, family environment. Yeah. My mum and dad, um, were really, were grafters. They worked really hard. Um, my mum was in care. My dad ran a business. Um, and so there's a really strong work ethic, I think that sort of combined mm-hmm. with that curiosity, which is just, landed me in some incredible places over the years um and so I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky very privileged to to have been to some of the places that I've been to um and to have met the people that I've met but I, I think it really comes down from that just being really curious about absolutely everything yeah yeah so I guess where does the curiosity come from in terms of you know going to these uh, sort of far-flung parts of the world and, and, and getting involved in kind of humanitarian projects uh, that, that you've that you've been really sure. heavily involved in you know wh- when did that kind of enter the frame I guess was it at university maybe or? yeah so so I, end, I ended up landing on something I ended up so I'd, I always thought I was going to be an architect you know I was really you know ultimately you know that was a that was about being curious about the world and you know the environment the context you're in so it kind of and then I was really creative as a kid and so that that was where I thought I was going to go I ended up doing a fine art degree at university okay um and it was after my first year that I realized that I wasn't quite ready just just to plow on through the education system and actually hadn't taken a break for ages and a lot of my friends had joined university and done a gap year I hadn't done anything like that and so I asked the university if it'd be okay if I actually took a gap year mid-degree. And they said, yeah, of course, as long as you come back. So um, so I did. And I, I decided to go off and travel uh, with, with some friends um, and, and traveled around bits of Asia at that, that time. Brilliant experiences. But it was towards the end of that year that I realized I was effectively buying those experiences. You know, it was very transactional. You know, I wanted to see the Great Wall of China. Well, I paid for a ticket and I went on to the Great Wall of China. You know, I wanted to see yeah. what it was like to, to, to experience some, some cultures in different parts of the world and you're effectively buying your way into it. And, and it, it felt a bit hollow uh, and mm. I didn't feel like I'd earned it. It felt that I was, you know, I was buying. So I, I realised that actually it's about immersion and I, I actually wanted to get to know these places. And rather than scooting around and hopscotching around different parts of the world, it might be better just to choose a place and stick in it. Uh, and so I went back to university and I held up to my promise and I did my second year. But then yeah. after my second year, I went back to them and said, look, I'm not quite done yet. Uh, would you mind if I take <laughs> another year out? And I said, of course, yeah, as long as you come back and finish. So I went, uh, but that time I went to volunteer. And so I, uh, I went to Ghana um, and spent three months working in a small village um doing one of those volunteer placement programs and Mm -hmm. everything changed for me at that point that was that was immersion that was when I wasn't buying experiences but I was earning them I was building relationships I was getting to know people um and people I'm still in touch with today actually um and it was it catapulted from there so the the volunteer organization I was working with so look, if you're ever interested in doing more of this, actually, you know, we, we pay people to kind of manage these programs internationally, would you be interested? And so I went back dutifully, finished my degree, um, started a small company with a friend shortly after that, making um, furniture, 
it's a different story but eventually yeah. I realized now I've got to go back and so um I called up the company and they said actually we've got a, we've got an opening um if you'd like to go back um we'd love to have you and so I went back and about 15 years later I came back to the UK so it was yeah. it was as a result of really trying to to recognize that I wanted to feel like I'd earned the experiences I was having and um and dedicate some proper time into actually getting to know these places and the people that are there yeah. Yeah, I guess you've been traveling to these various different parts of the world and you're obviously seeing people from completely different backgrounds and with, you know, completely uh, probably unequal access to resources and things like that and thinking, not only can I visit these places, but perhaps I can make a difference in these places and, and sort of seeing that you could do that. That was perhaps what gave you the the impetus to, you know, continue to pursue that, continue yeah, to work with I've, these NGOs I've... and... Yeah, absolutely. I've always been drawn by a sense of social justice, and and um, that's that's been a sort of a real personal value that drives a lot of my decision making, and um, and so that aligned really really well. But it also fueled the the desire to learn and experience as much as I possibly could. And I was in a period in my life where I had the chance, you know, I had no connections, no responsibilities other than my, to myself, and so um, it was a it was a brilliant brilliant period. But uh, it kickstarted a career for me for a while, and I was. Yeah. Um, so I, I moved from um, from Ghana, which was um, I was working and living in a refugee camp at the time. Um, uh, it was uh, from the Liberian conflict. There was a, there's a good number of Liberian refugees who travelled across and found safety in Ghana. Okay. Um, but it was within that community that they said, actually, we'd like to return back to Liberia and set up an NGO there. Would you like to come with us and, and assist in that process? And um, so I did. So I went and moved to Liberia. Um, and spent spent some time there helping an NGO get off the ground. And it was it was then that I started to form my niche, which was mm. sort of arriving early on in a country and starting a new program and effectively starting a new business in yeah. different locations. And that became my forte. That became my specialism. So I, I got quite adept at being able to land in a, either in a post-conflict or a conflict scenario. Um, and integrate with the local community and establish effectively what is a, you know, an operation. So you could spend six months doing that, um, a, a couple of years. And some of those, those postings sort of evolved into two year programs and things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was really rewarding work, but, um, and it, it definitely satisfied everything that I was looking for at that particular time. Yeah. I, I imagine there were probably some quite difficult moments as well, particularly if you seeing people i mean we've, we've seen the issues around people coming out of ukraine at the moment and obviously previous yeah. conflicts as well so was it was it a little bit of a kind of double-edged sword where you thought wow this is really i'm kind of like living my purpose in a way but also i'm constantly being exposed to people who've gone through sort of unimaginable hardships that you know that must have been quite a difficult thing growing up in the uk as as, as privileged as we are to go to these places and, and see the, the sort of complete dislocation that, that some people find themselves in. Yeah, right? it's, you do dis, you disassociate from that after a while and you become mm. really, really mindful of that. Um, I would say that the lasting memory of that, those periods, that point in my life is actually the strength and resilience of people. So I met some people who have been through some unimaginable horrors. You know, I worked with child soldiers in Northern Uganda for a few years. You know, these are, like, wow, that's like really hard. These are young kids, typically young boys, but not just young boys who, you know, wretched from their families at really young ages, as young as 10 and, and you know, conscripted into, um, you know, uh, rebel armies. Uh, yeah, unfathomable, actually. And but. But those communities and, and their resilience, it, that's what drives you. And their desire to move on and to with an eye on the future. And so it's the strength really comes from from the people that you're working with. Um, yeah. And if there's any lasting sort of um, learning or thing that's that really sits with me is, is that it's the word resilience. Like it's absolutely incredible how bad it can get and actually how yeah. people are able to turn it around um, and business plays a large part in that it gives people a huge amount of purpose it gives people um a, a reason for being um it, it provides for them in many ways and actually it was it was that when i started to see that entrepreneurship was a real way out of that that sort of started a bit of that 
transition for me mm. into um, out of humanitarian work. There are other other reasons and drivers too. Maybe we'll cover yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we kind of come out of humanitarian work, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about. So you spent a lot of time in, in Ghana and Liberia and in, in sort of other parts of Africa, but then you started working for uh, the Minds Advisory Group in Myanmar, right? So yeah. kind of completely different uh, sort of culture and, and demographic and, and probably some pretty unique challenges as well there compared to uh, conditions people were living in in Africa. So yeah, what was what was that experience like? Totally different. Yeah, so my last posting in um, in Africa was in the Congo, and that was definitely the hardest place to live for a while. And that, that was mm. because it was just incredibly remote. This is it took days and different forms of transport to get there. But um, while prior to being in in the Congo, I'd, I'd met my now wife, who who was a doctor from Manchester, volunteering. And so I'd always been planning to come back to the UK and establish some roots. I've been away for far too long, um, and yeah. so that coincided. And I, so I came back to Manchester to to um to lay those roots and sort of I was actually planning to go back to university and do some training but um I was looking around at what international humanitarian organizations sort of operated out of Manchester and the Minds Advisory Group was the largest most um, established charity so they're they're very famous for the the campaign to ban landmines which was um sort of headed by Diana and was working in partnership with another organization based up in Scotland Okay. Um, an incredible organization you know they've got operations all over the world and they are there to support communities following a conflict to clear up the debris you know the unexploded ordinance um, yeah. and to educate children and other people around the threats that exist and so I ended up not going to university because I was offered a job with mag uh, took that job um, and I took I was on the other side of the point so rather being in, in sort of the operational side and the delivery side I was actually back in the government relations and fundraising side trying to make oh, okay okay so, so I, I sort of came into the business development team um, and but I still then you know I, I'd had that background and track record of going to start programs and so Myanmar fascinating country uh, years and years decades of civil conflict and a, a legacy of that conflict is the fact that there's lots of homemade and improvised landmines scattered across the right, country okay. particularly in the north and the east and so it was definitely a privileged position uh but i was invited by the team then to go and start up their country program when the political environment in the country got to a point where it felt like there was an opening so the country is currently really troubled. You may have read in the news. Yeah, there's a kind of military uh, yeah. junta or something like that uh, that's taking control. Uh, yeah, right? okay. so that's a flare-up of, of, of what had happened previously. But during okay. that time, I think it was around 2013 or so, maybe a bit around that period anyway, um, all the years roll into one, don't they? Uh, yeah. I, I was Especially invited. after COVID. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I still think I'm 25. You know, um, yeah. so so I, I was invited <laughs> by the team. I went over there um, and set up the program. So you know, you, you basically land with an agenda um, to to establish the presence for the NGO um, with some resources available to you, and the job is to you know secure some accommodation, establish an office, build government relations, start recruiting staff build connections with other NGOs, make sure your work's not duplicating or competing with other, other activity, make sure you're sort of dovetailed into the ecosystem that was there. And there was a political opening at that point in time. And, and um, I'm really glad to see still, and I'm in contact with quite a few colleagues at MAG still, that the work's still going on. And their focus there is very much about education. So it's about teaching young people predominantly, but communities about the risks of trying to do the job themselves. So they know that there's a field that's contaminated with with unexploded ordnance, and they can't they can't farm that, so it's hindering their livelihoods. But they think that oh maybe we can just move it, and you know that that causes devastating consequences for, for families and communities when that goes wrong. And so that's the focus of that program. So yeah, I, I turned up in Yangon, and um, sort of a few months later, we were up and running, and it's still going strong today, as far as I believe. Um, so yeah, that was a, a great culture. Incredibly, um, at that particular point in time, the country was so thirsty for change. You know, there was mm. peace. The, there was an agreement between the, the, the military and, and sort of a more democratically elected government. They were in that transition and there was a real optimism about what the future is going to be. Big business was coming in. They were getting telephone sort of networks and it was, yeah. you know, eyes were being open. It was a, it was, 
it was a great time. Um, Didn't the leader win the Nobel Peace Prize yeah, as and, well? Yeah, right? but she's also now being criticised for some of her recent responses to the current conflict. So I think it just goes to show these are really dynamic situations and um, you do what you can. So, you know, I was there, yeah. I did the best that I could, the team did the best that they could, um, and they're, they're still there, you know, trying to protect as many lives as they possibly can through that sort of education programme. Um, yeah. But you just wish countries like that and, and, and all the best and, and the hope that, that it will return to a really peaceful scenario um, because the impacts of these kind of conflicts, you know, it doesn't stop when the, the bombs stop dropping. You know, it's decades and decades after that. It's yeah. generational. Um, and yeah, it's just just immensely tragic. And so you just kind of hope hope that it calms down quick enough so that, that you know, the next generation coming through grow up in a, in a peaceful environment and, um, and are there is, you know, to sustain and maintain the peace. So they grow up knowing peace. So that's what they expect to see going forward. And they can be you know, yeah. the custodians of that going forward rather than growing up in conflict and being embedded in that from day one. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then um, the, the team at MAG do amazing work. And if anyone anyone listening to this don't know about, about that charity, um, do check them out. It's still really close to my heart. Yeah, of course, of course. And do, do you think one of the things that people perhaps misunderstand about going into these environments, because you do just think, well, you know, provide uh, aid and, 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 and money and resources and various other things like that. But do you think it kind of takes the NGOs to and to be able to go in where the governments don't have these kind of complex nationwide civil sort of institutions where they can, you know, adequately distribute the resources across the country and fairly and things like that? So I think, do you think that's one of the things that people misunderstand and perhaps sort of translate the really solid kind of governance structures that we've got in the UK and in other Western countries, because it's not like that, right? In some of these locations that there is a, there is a government presence, but it, it yeah. can be very limited in, in certain parts of these places. So you kind of just have to go in uh, as you did and, and, and sort of, it's the art of the possible as much as anything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, peace is really fragile, you know, so, so when a, when a country has been at war or still at war, you know, what little peace there is offers some stability and that's a very precious and, and you know Liberia was a tinderbox while I was there like any, anything the slightest thing and that whole country was you know ready to re-erupt into civil wow. war and um and so what what the NGOs are doing is is operating within that environment right it's a really sort of you have to be incredibly uh, attuned to what's happening on the ground and try to respond but you're there is a value add and you're there at be at invitation too right so yeah the this is often um augmenting what is effectively uh you know the, the existing uh, political infrastructure whatever that might be is trying to achieve and you know when it fails catastrophically you get like the un you know turning up in 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 the congo for instance with minusco you know effectively you know a country so huge geographically so vast um without the infrastructure there you know that actually it's there to, to sort of support a transition. Now, some of those times, those transitions are taking generations. Sometimes it can be quicker, um, but but it's definitely there to augment, you know, what is effectively what people are trying to do for themselves. Um, yeah. And, and um, that's, you know, it's, it's that. It's, it's working alongside local communities, helping them deliver the, you know, their visions of the future, what they want to achieve, helping them establish the, or re-establish you know, the local ecosystems, the local economies that they're actually sort of, you know, proud of and will be able to carry on. Uh, and, and so we're there to support that work rather than than to turn up and do anything for them. Um, but that requires yeah. resources, money, time, expertise. Um, and when it works well, and it doesn't always work well, but when it works well, it's a really beautiful collaboration and, and between so many different kind of partners and stakeholders. And, and that's what you're aiming for is, is where it's all sort of firing together and, um, and, and that's why there are experts, you know, there are people really attuned and capable yeah. of doing this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's really rewarding work. And and I guess to to kind of segue to what happened next, yeah. what is that kind of relationship between, <laughs> uh, you know, international humanitarian assistance yeah. and then what followed, which was you getting involved with the kind of UK cooperative movement, right? So yeah. was, was there, were there a lot of um, sort of transferable skills and experiences that you kind of, might not necessarily connect the two initially, right? But they are there. 
yeah, I mean, it's problem solving. So, you know, for me personally, it's about social justice, right? And so, you know, our, you know, my my current thinking and belief is that the economic system in this country is broken. You know, the the social contracts that we have with 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 our sort of policymakers is broken. Um, you know, we've got raging inequality. We've got cost of living crisis. You know, it's, that, that's actually impacting those that probably you know, the poorest, the worst at the moment. And so um, when I got back to Manchester, I was I was exhausted, to be honest, after years and years of travelling around and working in... Understandably, yeah. Yeah, and so I was looking, you know, and I, and, and I was looking to set up roots, maybe start a family. And so I was looking for something a bit closer to home. But that sense Perfect. of social justice was really, really strong. And it was, it was a complete chance meeting. Um, you know, I was working for MAG um, and was looking for my next... You know, going back to that being curious, so I was like, well, what, what, you know, what's happening here closer to home? And I also really wanted to get to know the city, Manchester, really well, because I, I, I'd never lived here before. And it was a, something, it's a great city. And I just thought, oh, wow, OK, I need to immerse myself in this city now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found out that the, the, the cooperative movement was founded in Manchester. It was a global movement. It had, uh, you know, had exported this concept globally. Um, and they were looking for someone to help grow their business development program. So it was, but in terms of those transferable skills, it was kind of helping problem solve the challenge of, well, why aren't more co-ops being started in the UK? You know, it was, it was still a relatively niche uh, part of the economy. There's some great, really well-established examples and some great experimentation. So what can we do with those examples and help catalyze some change? Because, because co-ops in, in the same way to employ ownership offer a very different business model and therefore, personal outcome uh, for those engaged in it, and so it really spoke to me at sort of those those that level. And so, yeah, I joined the joined the team, um, made that move, and then it was I realised that actually I'd, I'd worked with some um, cooperative cotton growing farmers in northern Uganda, and I was like, oh, I've, I've worked ah, with co-ops right, before, okay. yeah. but it wasn't. It was after the fact that 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 connection was made. Okay. Um, so it was it was you know due to sort of personal choices, wanting to sort of sort of root myself here um and and actually it being a fascinating really culturally rich network with um with some brilliant people and and you know and a really exciting job prospect you know in terms of there was a real challenge there you know there wasn't the 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 cooperative movement wasn't seeing lots and lots of growth but there were some examples and ideas being explored that that might have done and so I was like really fortunate I, I I started there and I grew a team um who were doing some really brilliant work and a lot of that work's continuing and and mm. a, a strong respect and affinity for the you know for, for what they do but it was through that relationship and that work that i started to learn about and hear of the eoa yeah so i guess would you say that the kind of cooperative movement sort of laid some of the foundations for the employee ownership model do you know i think i feel that that's quite an obvious uh quite quite an obvious transition that, that's happened in the last sort of in the last 10 years where it's it's been another kind of structure that that that, that companies can follow to pursue more more sort of purpose-led um, employee well-being and, and things like that so yeah uh and obviously to talk a little bit about um you becoming the the ceo of the eoa right yeah. as well how did that opportunity come about and and, and yeah yeah what attracted you to it i guess there, there are very clear distinctions between sort of the cooperative, what they define themselves as, as a movement, you know, and, and the EO, what I would call a community. But if we mm. think of it as a spectrum of ownership, they're certainly on the same spectrum. You know, this is yeah. uh, these are business models that offer, op, you know, people a, a stake and a say in their business. And, and that's really transformational. And so um, I think that, you know, there are some really uh, sort of the, the legacy uh, pioneers of the cooperative and the employee-owned space. You've got the co-op is actually, you know, the manifestation of the original Rochdale pioneers, you know, hundreds of years yeah. old, you know, the co-op that we know what we, we buy our groceries from on the corner. In the same way, John Lewis is, you know, the modern manifestation of, of Spean Lewis's vision, you know, at a similar sort of time. So they both, both of our networks have got legacy that, that go way back into sort of the industrial, you know, periods of, of, of yeah. um, but So I think there is a mutually reinforcing network. However, the, the two communities don't necessarily see themselves um, as, as being connected. And that's okay, but, you know, that's healthy. There's, there's a good yeah. reason for that. Um, 
I think that the employ- that employee ownership feels uh, for parts of our economy particularly relevant or pertinent right now and a good fit. Um, and I actually think that cooperatives equally for a different part of our, our uh, economic system is also a good fit. Um, and I, so my, my hope is that both of those see continued growth um, because what they offer is, you know, um, a, a transformational, well, hopefully you'd be able to say this as well, you know, having worked for an EO business, but, you know, it offers something very different and actually addresses some of those things that I mentioned early on about um, about raging inequality and wage share and, and actually having a voice in the workplace and feeling valued, et cetera. So um, there's definitely that relationship between the two. And I think I, I wouldn't advocate for one over the other. It's, mm. it's more about making sure that there's a, we need a more plural economy in this country. We need different types, you know, social enterprises, charities, you know, more forms of generative businesses, all working together and then business founders and owners or communities can select the right model for them rather than it being prescribed, you know, as a particular way of doing things. Um, so it was, yeah, it was in that spectrum um, that the Cooperatives UK started partnering with the EOA on a joint okay. campaign. So okay. I'll just indulge you a little bit here on, you know, how that relationship formed. So um, the, the, the two organisations formed something called the One Million Owners Campaign um, right. this a few years ago which we, through our evidence, suggested that if there was a fivefold increase in the number of employee or worker owners in the country, you would end up with a million employee worker owners, right? So that would be people on that spectrum um, of ownership. Um, and from that, uh, that campaign got some traction um, and it got some traction with some funders some people interested in going, this is really interesting. Um, how are you going to achieve it? And we said, well, we, we kind of need some money to do some interesting stuff to support the growth of both the co-op and, and employee ownership. And so it's so okay, well, what's that look like? And we, we effectively got a program funded and there's now a live joint project called the Ownership Hub. The Ownership okay. Hub is a partnership between Cooptives UK and the EOA. Um, we are a central hub of knowledge and expertise and we are partnering with spokes um, and in those spokes are combined authorities. Um, and we're currently okay. operating in South Yorkshire um, with the through the mayoral and combined authority to deliver awareness raising and local campaigns and to grow um, yeah, awareness and uptake of employee and worker ownership models in a very specific space. Um, we're looking to onboard additional combined authorities later this year. I'm not in a position mm. to say where just yet, but they're there um, in, the, okay. in the wings waiting to, to join. Um, and that is in, in over time will help us accelerate the growth of employee ownership in some specific regions and areas towards that 1 million owners campaign. So yeah, while at Cox UK, I was, I was involved okay. in that and that's how I met the EOA. And so that's how I started to get familiar with the employee ownership model and the business and the very um, formidable and generous Deb Oxley, who, um, who was my predecessor. And so it was through those kind of conversations that um, I started to be getting really interested in what was this, you know, what was happening in this space. Um, and that's how I met the, the team. Okay, perfect, perfect. And I think the the idea of that one million owners campaign, James, being that uh, the more uh, individuals we have sort of invested in the way that businesses are run, the greater our chances are of tackling some of the kind of social and and maybe yeah. some environmental challenges that we that we face. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. We can come back to that absolutely, but. Um... We know that by giving, we know that employee and worker-owned businesses are more generative as large. You know, they offer, they offer the people in those businesses greater, a greater sense of ownership, obviously. Um, and with that sense of ownership comes a sense of pride, a sense of belonging, you know, um, and, and so you see business impacts like improves productivity. Um, yeah. But it's also, you know, at an individual level, um, a greater self-worth and understanding. And I think that that can be transformational in our, com- our economy and start to address some of the challenges that we're seeing. What's really positive about the ownership hub approach is we are getting political support at regional mm-hmm. levels through the metro mayors that says, actually, we want our city regions or our, to be, we want more of this. You know, we recognise that as a benefit to delivering business in that way. And so there are references to employee ownership, to worker cooperatives in policy papers and manifestos, industrial strategies. Um, yeah. And that's great to see at a policy level, a political level. 
what we're trying to do as the EOA is provide a very practical, tangible translation of that policy commitment into action. So okay. it's not you're not going to get sort of the combined authorities doing the doing. You know, they need partners. And so that's where we step in. We sort of we step in and bring our our communities, our networks, our members to sort of help us advocate and, and train more widely around you know what the opportunities are. Um, and so hopefully that will grow over the next few years. It's certainly part of the plan. Perfect, perfect. I think we should probably just define because you know I work for an employee-owned business. You're you're the leader of the association that that uh, represents employee-owned businesses yeah. across the UK. So we're both very familiar with what an employee-owned business is, right? But I guess to somebody who has never heard of employee ownership before, could you just kind of explain maybe what what it is and and, and yeah, for us to just kind of define our terms a little bit. I mean, historically, it would have been called the John Lewis model, right? That, mm-hmm. That's that's what would that's what people would probably uh, be able to identify with, you know. And, yeah. But I think what we're seeing over recent years, as this model of business has grown, is a greater awareness and understanding of it. It's a bit of a Ron Seal type name, right? Employee ownership does what it says on the tin. You know, employees own the business. Um, I, I've used this term a few times already today, but it, it's about giving everybody in the business a stake and a a meaningful stake and a meaningful say in how the business is run and the rewards that that are generated as a result of that. And we believe that that by doing that, you can unlock the the, the sort of potential within those individuals and within that business to make that business flourish um, and become a really um, a brilliant business for the individuals working within it, but also for its wider community um, and, and, and make business a, a really positive change that's needed right now. Um, yeah. You know, we need the private sector to be on board with some of the changes that we need to see to tackle some of the biggest, you know, crises that we're facing at the moment. Um, and by offering employees that meaningful say and stake, you'll start to hear the voices of not just a handful of directors at the top making decisions, but, but you know, in terms of some of those really fundamental decisions about the way that businesses are going to behave is actually driven by a much broader base. You've got that sort of much broader conscience within the business contributing to some of that, sort of some of those strategic decisions. Mm. So um, it's it's a different way of doing business. It's got fantastic legacy and history, and it's got some really great modern innovators who are doing some brilliant things. Um, and, and it sits in a, a space that I would call generative business. Yeah, yeah. I think... One of the things that we're always kind of keen to underline is that if there's a business out there that's privately held and it has, um, you know, a number of a number of shareholders, and you know, they're perhaps looking at this model, they're looking at how to uh, get more employee buy-in, increase productivity and 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 well-being and things like that, and they're looking at the kind of employee ownership model. It's 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 perhaps a difficult decision for them to make because then that means that they're going to be sharing the sort of the wealth of the company, if you like with a wider group of people so i guess what would you say to those kinds of people to encourage them that is it a case of maybe rising tides lift all boats a little bit and let's focus on growing the 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 pie right rather than taking a a bigger chunk out of it i would i would definitely i think that's a i think that's a perfect little expression there in terms of (laughs) of how how to say it um it's you know we would never prescribe employee ownership so it 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 will be adopted by people um for the right reasons you know Mm. it's for many business owners and business founders they will transition to employee ownership for a couple you know for in in a couple of scenarios one is that they're thinking of selling their business and so there's an opportunity to hand their business to a new owner you know that's a really seismic event inside a business now the options are you could do a traditional uh, management buyout you could private sale to to um there is, what happens with those is those private sales business tends to change really rapidly the culture within the business everything that, that a business founder and owner might have developed and grown and invested in over the years is no longer sort of protected what we know is that when you transition or sell a business to its employees you're more likely to retain that kind of legacy that that, that mm, culture that dna if you like absolutely it's you know it it it, it because there's not that seismic change um, in terms of you know of who it is and how it how it's owned and who it belongs to, um, and so the you know the staff kind of recognise and acknowledge that. Um, or you're seeing businesses transition to employee ownership for growth reasons. They're recognising that there is this untapped potential, and actually 
yes, as an entrepreneur, I've shouldered the burden or a handful of us have shouldered the responsibility to get the business from a concept to where we've got it today. But but acknowledge that the next step is actually going to be more fruitful, you know, with a greater sense of ownership, um, greater input, um, more people driving sort of with positive behaviours. Um, and so we see transition and growth. With that's, that's where we see a lot of, of employee ownership at the moment. Um, and going back to your point, you know, I think if you acknowledge either of those things, if, if you're sort of looking at your business thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to have to share it more equally. If that doesn't rate with, uh, resonate with you at an individual level, then it's probably not probably not the model for you. You'd probably go into it for the wrong reasons. But if you yeah. recognise that actually this is a collective endeavour and we are inherently cooperative and, and you know collective beings, then actually this is probably the right way to do business. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a really nice way to, to put it. So, in terms of how businesses can make this change to employee ownership one of the really sort of pivotal moments was when the employee ownership trusts were kind of introduced right back in, yeah. in 2014 and i think if if you were to chart a, 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 if you were to put a chart or a graph and you looked at the growth of employee ownership i imagine it would it would fork quite quite strongly upwards yeah. after after 2014 so yeah i guess you know fr- from your perspective james what kind of impact do you think that employee ownership and the introduction of employee ownership trusts has has had on the whole UK business community because I, I do think we've seen, you know, a much greater shift in the last few years about, you know, businesses seeing their employees as their greatest asset, listening to their employees, um, and uh, and using their employees as a resource to overcome challenges for, for for business, but also these greater kind of social challenges and environmental challenges as well. So, do you think that? employee ownership's had quite a big impact on on UK PLC, if you like. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch to sort of say that the, there's a, let, let's guesstimate, I'm, we're about to announce new data on the 24th of June. Yeah, don't want to pre So I'm not, I'm not going to say, I can't, can't give you, but let's say, you know, we know that there's upwards of 150,000 employee owners in the UK. So it's, it's really relatively small in terms of the total number of employees, you know, UK wide. Mm. To think that those 150 in this way of doing business is impacting the thinking at that sort of PLC level, I'm, I'm not sure that's just there yet. But the zeitgeist has changed, right? Mm. And, and everything you've just mentioned is absolutely true. People have, as a result of the pandemic and the challenges in the last few years, but also as a result of 40 years of neoliberalism and, 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 and really aggressive sort of you know, um, hostile a uh, 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 sort of wealth accumulation, you know, within the UK, um, you know, a new generation of, of people is are moving through, and there's a new generation of entering in the workforce who aren't going to tolerate that model, who aren't are who who expect at a minimum a, a genuine opportunity to influence the the their work environment, mm-hmm. and you know, five, probably 10 years ago, you know, CSR was on, on the big agenda, you know, actually business recognises they needed to be seen to be doing better and more externally. Yeah. But actually ownership um, is, a, is a really core part of that. And actually, as we look more towards ESG, you know, businesses thinking yeah. that they need to do more, they need to be power uh, powerhouses for good across, you know, across the world. Um, we're, we're starting to see that ownership start to come into that thinking. Right. And so I think we actually had a model that was fit for purpose 20 years ago. It was just relatively unknown. And the the mood music in the in sort of the cultural readiness for as as a country, it wasn't there. We're getting to the point now now where they're a little bit more dovetailed. And actually what we're seeing and what we've got is a uh, a growing community, a rapidly growing community of businesses demonstrating that those things are really well joined and actually ownership should be a fundamental consideration in terms of how to do business, you know, how to do better business. Um, yeah. And so I just think, I think now is our moment, you know, the next five years are really, really exciting um, in, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of tailwinds a, a, around employee ownership at the moment. And it, it does feel that there's, there's a kind of alignment there uh, that's, that's, that's really, um, you know, that, that, that's, that's, boards well for the future i, I think yeah. so yeah. yeah i guess final things james you know how 
you know, what are your kind of plans now that you've kind of put your feet under the table at the, at the EOA? Um, obviously, you've got, there's tons of activity that you guys are going to be doing over the rest of this year to kind of keep yeah. banging the drum for employee ownership. So can you talk a little bit about, yeah, your, your plans and then and then maybe just sort of we'll, we'll, we'll kind of sign off with a little bit crystal ball about what the future is going to look sure. like for, for right. employee well- ownership? So look, I joined I joined the UA because it's an exciting time for the business and the sector. Mm. Right, we're seeing significant growth. Um, 2014 definitely was the catalyst in that the pandemic has accelerated it even further. More business founders are sort of thinking about their own future and have realised that employee ownership is one of their options. For us, we're 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 building for that growth. You know, we're investing in the team. So as the scale of this uh, sector grows or segment of the economy grows, we want to reinforce our policy capabilities. I think. We're seeing more experimentation within employee ownership. And so we we want to be part of the conversation around what best practice and what good EO looks like. And that requires us to have mature and grown up conversations with our community, but, you know, translate and take those to to government, central government, regional government, government Mm. across the nations. And so we're going to reinforce our own capacity in that space. Yeah. Um, we need to invest in our own digital capabilities so that we can um, be more effective at convening. You know, a big role of an association is bringing, kickstarting the conversation and connecting, you know, organisations like yours to, to like-minded businesses or businesses yeah. operating in similar or relevant segments. So we know that there are more effective tools available. Um, so we'll be investing in a programme of work that sort of helps us ensure that members continue to get really good value out of the EOA. Um, and and that that more people recognise that this is a really great way of doing business, um, and, and then beyond that, we're really looking forward to making and prioritising uh, what we always have done, which is keeping business personal. You know, this is a great. You hopefully you'll, you'll be joining a conference later in the year. Um, so so we, we we want to keep that personal touch. You know, we we want this to feel like a really um, welcoming um, part part of the the economy, and and so far that's exactly what I've experienced. Underpinning a lot of this work is is the need for improved data and research. And so uh, early this year, we launched a a two year research program where we're going to be really drilling into the sort of the socioeconomic impact of employee ownership. Um, um, I mentioned this at our AGM earlier in the year. Um, I'll be talking more about this at the conference um, on the 3rd and 4th of October. Uh, we're in Liverpool this year. Shameless plug, you know, if you're employee-owned, do come along. It's a great opportunity to learn about the sector. If you're not employee-owned, come along. It's a great way to learn about the sector. Um, Perfect. But yeah, the, yeah, the Knowledge Programme will really hopefully transform our understanding of what it means to be employee-owned and help businesses understand and communicate that so that it can help with their retention, their employee engagement, their, their, mm. sort of their ongoing USP, and demonstrate what a brilliant contribution EOs have in. Yeah. Yeah, and then on the future of employee ownership, James. Yeah, wow, there's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, uh, I, th- I think going back to my point around ownership chimes with younger generations. You look at Generation Z, the sort of the values, their, their expectations entering the workplace. I can't not be anything other than pop, uh, really optimistic for the future of this, of this space. As I say, I think we've got a proven model, a model that works. Um, I'm a big believer in collaboration. I really, you know, I've seen in my previous work and, and the, what happens when that works really well. So I want, I want EO to be part of a thriving ecosystem of a really, you know, of a more plural economy where people have got the opportunity to choose the model that's right for them, choose the job that that's right for them um, and be rewarded fairly uh, for, for their, their time and investment in that. And I think for the EOA, you, you'll see us, hopefully brokering new partnerships and, and trying to lock and anchor employee ownership as a concept and as part of a much broader conversation around, you know, what the future economy of this country needs to be and look like. Perfect. Well, good luck, James. Good luck. Yeah, I've just set myself uh, a really big task, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll hold you to this. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. Definitely do. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky. I work with a brilliant, really ambitious team. So um, it's, it's, it's not just me. This is, you know, us and the wider community who I believe want to see this happen. Perfect. Perfect, James. Well, yeah, thanks so much for your time. And, and we look forward to EO Day and the EO Conference and, and later in the year and, and all of the other activity. So where's where's the best place just to get 
in touch with you or to get in touch with with the, the team? Is is that just to head over to the website? Head over, head over to the website, top of the website. It's all the de- details about the conference. Early bird tickets are now on sale. Um, but, you know, do let us know what you're doing on EO Day. Um, there's some brilliant celebrations happening up and down the country. Um, we're, we're mapping that. We want to add that, you know, and we want to help support and champion everything that you guys are doing. Um, it's been really a, a pleasure talking to you, Richard. Thanks for the invite. Thanks, James. All the best. So that was James Delavine talking about his plans for growing the number of employee-owned businesses across the UK and opening up about some of his fascinating work in Africa and Asia, supporting a range of humanitarian projects and initiatives. It was really nice to hear that James has always been driven by his curiosity, which is an important quality for any business leader or entrepreneur to have, that kind of wonderment about how things work and why they are the way they are. In the same vein, James has also always been motivated by a sense of social justice, which is something that has come up time and time again on this podcast. And I think what we can learn from that is that it is really the case that conversations around values, purpose and impact are in the ascendancy right now across the business community. In terms of key takeaways then, the first thing to highlight is the role businesses can and must play in terms of bringing about a new kind of economy that tackles things like inequality, climate change and other issues that we know as a society we can no longer push to one side. And second to that is how central things like employee ownership, cooperative ownership and other corporate structures are to delivering these kinds of macroeconomic changes that we need. James says that while employee ownership is not necessarily going to be for every business, If you're interested in maintaining the DNA of your business over the long term or unlocking the growth potential of your business and expanding into new markets and sectors, then investing your team with a stake and a say in how the company is run is a good way to do that. So if you want to learn more about the EOA's work in terms of building the business case for employee ownership, then do reach out via employeeownership.co.uk. James and the team put tons of events on throughout the year as well to raise awareness. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. And if you want to find out what it's like to transition to employee ownership from an organization that's been through the process, then of course you can reach out to us here at UMI. Uh, We are UMI.co.uk. We've been employee owned since 2011 and can't even begin to describe the number of benefits it's brought our business. So yeah, please do get in touch. As always, thanks so much to James for his time and thank you all for listening.